This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Hello, everyone. My name is Erin Trelor, and I am the host of Raw Beauty Talks. We're taking you behind the highlight reel of the world's biggest influencers and wellness gurus to get a raw glimpse of what beauty, health, and wellness look like in today's world so that you can feel your absolute best in your body and in your life. Hello, everyone. We can't talk about health and wellness without addressing sleep. According to goodbody.com, 35% of Americans don't get the recommended amount of sleep each night and roughly 20% have a sleep disorder. Today on the show, we have sleep doctor, psychologist and author, Dr. Janet Kennedy here to share her wealth of knowledge on sleep. We will be covering everything from how sleep changes our brain to how much you should be getting and ways to wind down. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Kennedy. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Can you give me a little bit of background on what a sleep doctor does and who you work with? Sure. There's actually two kinds of sleep doctors. There are the doctors who work with medical sleep disorders, and then there are psychologists and other therapists who work with the behavioral sleep disorders. So I fall in the second category. And what I do is work with adults who have insomnia or other concerns about sleep in terms of their sleep quality or their sleep habits or they're taking medication and they don't want to be for sleep. And I help them with a treatment that's called CBTI, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia. And that is designed to very quickly get the body back on track, sort of recalibrate the body clock, clean up bad habits, and deal with the anxiety that goes along with a period of bad sleep so that people can build more resilience with their sleep and learn to tolerate normal ups and downs without those things turning into longer-term problems. I also work with parents of young children, helping them get their babies and toddlers off on the right track when it comes to sleep. But that's sort of a separate part of what I do. I feel like we can have a whole episode on just that topic. And as a mom of a three and a half and a one and a half year old, (laughs) who is just coming (laughs) out the other side of some serious postpartum anxiety, I understand the power of sleep and why it is so important, which is why I'm so passionate right now about talking about this subject, because I saw what happens to our body (laughs) and our mental health when we aren't sleeping properly. And obviously there's, you know, a number of factors involved with what happened, but I really truly believe that sleep was the number one catalyst. My lack of sleep, it really caused some serious problems. So can we touch on that? Why is sleep so important? And are you able to touch a little bit more on the science of how it impacts our health so that we really understand what's going on? Sure. Well, sleep really affects almost every body system. We're working hard and playing hard and we're asking a lot of our bodies all day long. And then that other third of the day, the time that we're unwinding and sleeping is really spent repairing and rejuvenating and getting ready for the next day. So everything from sort of rebooting the immune system, repairing muscles, consolidating memory and learning, hormone regulation, cortisol regulation, all kinds of chemical things are happening while we're sleeping. And the body really needs that time to recuperate. 
Now, what happens if we don't give it that time? I hesitate to be too doom and gloom about this because I feel like there's a really fine line. There's so many messages in the media about all the terrible things that are going to happen to us if we don't get enough sleep. And I want to say that those messages are important in that they teach us to value sleep and they're bringing about a bit of a culture shift in that in generations past, people have really felt like sleep was wasted time and lost productivity. And now we're coming to really understand that that's not true, that sleep is an essential part of our productivity. But when people get very hung up on specific benchmarks with sleep, where they're tracking it with a Fitbit or some other device, or they're keeping really close track of exactly how much sleep they're getting, that can lead to a lot of performance anxiety. So I don't like to go overboard with these messages, although it's important to understand why we need to sleep. So here's what happens when we are sleep deprived. We get sick because our immune system doesn't function as well and we're more susceptible to colds and flu. We can gain weight both because our insulin resistance goes down and also because we're making poor food choices. Sleep regulates the hormones that actually tell us what to eat. Ah, fascinating. It's true. When I think about those days that I wake up super tired, all I want is carbs. Absolutely. All I want is those foods that are going to re-energize me momentarily, but it creates this bad cycle. It's a terrible cycle. You get that comfort and you get that fullness and you get that energy, but then you get the crash, which leads you to either eat more of those things or drink coffee or take naps or try to go to bed early. And those things can really throw you off. Other consequences of sleep deprivation would be memory problems, poor attention, and difficulties or grabbing onto and incorporating new information. There's also performance impairment, so anything from response time when you're driving to even word-finding difficulty. There's a whole range of performance impairments that can be traced back to sleep. Car accidents, industrial accidents, things like that are, are much more prominent when people are sleep deprived. And certainly there's an impact on our mood and anxiety levels because as cortisol levels rise, our mood and anxiety rises as well. And sleep is really important for regulating cortisol. I feel like every symptom you just described, I have <laughs> slightly right now. And I feel like it's all getting so much better from you know where I was at last year, which was sort of rock bottom, but it's still there. So I have been focused on sleep and I don't track it on an app, but really just making it more of a priority and not going back on my computer after the kids go to bed, taking a longer time to wind down and really just making it more of a priority. When we get to that place, of severe sleep deprivation, or even not even severe sleep deprivation, maybe it's just minimal, how long does it take to recover from that, to repair our brain and our systems? Well, I don't have a great answer for that because I, I don't think that the science is really there yet in giving us that answer. What we do know is that you can't make up for lost sleep completely. So let's say you accrue a sleep debt of like one hour a day across the week. You can't then just sleep five extra hours on the weekend and repair all of that. But what you can do is get yourself into a good, healthy rhythm where you're doing the things that you were just talking about, really prioritizing sleep and making sure that 
you're not just giving yourself the time to sleep, but you're taking care of your mind and your body and you're setting up routines that really are conducive to good, healthy sleep. And that over time allows us to get back into a healthy rhythm. You know, the body is is very forgiving. It's not like the average person would accrue such a sleep debt over a year of child rearing that they would do such damage that couldn't be remediated. But, you know, we need to pay attention to these things from the start because as you said, I would go out on a limb and say probably the number one risk factor for postpartum mood and anxiety disorders is sleep deprivation. And so if we understand that from the start and we take care of ourselves as new parents and we take care of ourselves as adults who are just, you know, grinding it out from day to day, then we will have more to offer, we'll be more resilient. And in fact, our productivity will go up over the long term because we're we're overall healthier. Yes, honestly, if there's any mom out there or individual who's working really hard right now and you have the opportunity to sneak in that nap or to go to bed at the same time as your baby's going to bed, please do it because it, when you talk about, you know, the long-term productivity that you can gain by keeping your sleep rhythms relatively consistent and stable. I lost a year of productivity mm-hmm. recovering from this. So it is real and it and it sneaks up on you as well. It does. I mean, I thought I was totally fine. I knew at the time that I was sleep deprived, that things weren't adding up, that I was not getting enough sleep, but I felt very energized. What is going on in my body when that happens? When we're sleep deprived, the body responds to that with adrenaline. It's a very primitive fight or flight response that we have. When there's a problem, our body gives us adrenaline to give us the energy to solve that problem. The trouble is that if the problem is insomnia at night, you're going to have the same response as if you are sleep deprived and you're trying to change a diaper or drive a car. You have that burst of adrenaline that's designed to keep you awake. So yeah, you're running on fumes. And I mean, I think we all have to be kind to ourselves in terms of our expectations. And I see a lot of new moms in particular who struggle with perfectionism and sort of this idea that we shouldn't be sleep deprived. We shouldn't be adjusting to this. We shouldn't be struggling. In fact, when you suddenly have a new person in your life who has a lot of, is making a lot of demands on you, let alone when you have two of those people, (laughs) (laughs) it's hard to do everything up to your own standards. And so, yes, if you have a six month old or an eight month old or, you know, 18 month old who's not sleeping through the night, that you should take care of. Like we shouldn't accept that kind of sleep deprivation. But we also have to accept that there's going to be a certain amount of fatigue that comes from parenting. Whether you're a stay-at-home parent or you're working outside the home, the demands on you in those first couple of years are really intense. And I think it's not only mothers and and parents in general, but also individuals who are studying for exams at university and people are working insane hours these days that we've never worked before. There are so many people that are sleep derived and running on adrenaline. I would love to know how does coffee affect our sleep rhythm? So, you know, caffeine will 
boost your alertness. But the problem with that is your body, it doesn't do anything to actually refresh you or take away the fatigue. So it kind of masks the fatigue. And once the caffeine wears off, you can have a crash. And then people often get into a really terrible cycle of just continuing with more and more caffeine throughout the day. The problem with that aside from the fact that you're not going to feel very good if you do that, is that the body takes a lot longer to metabolize caffeine than we all think. So it can take up to 12 hours to get that fully out of your system. And when you have caffeine in your system, your sleep architecture is compromised, which means that you don't spend as much time in deep restorative sleep. So a lot of times people will say, well, I can fall asleep if I have that espresso after dinner. And I'm like, great. But the reason you feel like garbage in the morning is because you're not getting the deep sleep with that caffeine. So, you know, it's really, really important to be mindful of caffeine and not just coffee, all the drinks, you know, all the sports drinks and energy drinks and sodas, all those things have caffeine. I love my coffee. I love my green tea. I just am really mindful about when I'm having it because particularly as you get older, your body is a little less resilient and your sleep is a little more fragile. So you need to take even better care. So what worked for you in your 20s isn't necessarily going to be so great for you in your 40s and 50s and beyond. Gotcha. Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals for a second. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that really don't help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversation, and Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teachings so you're ready to practice what you learned in the real world. If you're heading to another country, anytime soon, start using Babbel a few weeks before you go to learn basics like how to order food, ask for directions, speak to merchants without having to consult language apps while you're away. So fun. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash raw beauty talks. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash raw beauty talks. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash Robbie Talks. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Lola V, an award-winning hair care line founded by the fabulous Jennifer Aniston. Jen got tired of the same old struggle we all face, choosing between hair products that work and ones that are actually good for us. With Lola V, that dilemma is history. We all put our hair through the ringer. That's why it's crucial to have products that not only repair the look of the damage, but also shield your locks from future harm. Enter Lola V's bestsellers, the Glossing Detangler and the Perfecting Leave-In Conditioner. They're your hair's new best friends. For a limited time, you get 15% off your entire order at lolavie.com. Just use the code rawbeautytalks at checkout. Lolavie is all about naturally derived plant-based goodness, no silicone, sulfates, parabens, or gluten, and of course, cruelty-free and vegan. That's 15% off your order at lolavie.com with promo code rawbeautytalks. You can only use one promo code per order and discounts can't be combined. After you purchase, they'll ask you where you heard about them. Tell them I sent you 
over. I mean, I hear a lot of people say like, I can drink coffee all day, no problem. What are the signs that you want to look out for that maybe caffeine is impacting your sleep architecture? Really just not feeling rested and restored the next day. If you feel like you got a good amount of sleep and you don't feel energized during the day, then I would say do an experiment and cut back on the caffeine and see if you get a bump from that because you really might. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons that sleep quality can be compromised. And I want to talk about that in a little more depth because our lifestyles these days are just not set up for good sleep. You were mentioning, you know, that people are working much longer hours and and much harder than they ever have. That is true. We're also doing a lot more childcare than we ever have done. And the lines between work and home time are completely dissolved. We bring everything home. We're reachable all the time. We have this multitasking machine in the palm of our hands all the time. So we're going, we're toggling back and forth between social stuff and personal stuff and business stuff and family stuff. And all of that is super activating. And the brain doesn't really know what to do when we shut that off. It needs a significant amount of time to settle down. You know, I liken it to sort of going on a long run. You don't just stop short and expect your body to be okay. You have to do a cool down and your brain needs that too at the end of a day of work and all of the technology that goes along with that. So I would love to dive deep into, as you said, how people can improve their sleep quality and what, you know, what that, that wind down period looks like. But before we do that, can you explain a little bit more about this concept of sleep architecture and what it is that we're aiming for? So we know why we're doing this wind down, (laughs) what that looks like. So sleep architecture is just a fancy way of talking about sleep cycles. We start out in sleep in a very light sleep. It's called phase one. And in phase one sleep, we are sort of half asleep and you can still hear what's going on around you. You might have weird thoughts or waking dreams. You might hear things that aren't actually happening. Sometimes people hear their name called or the doorbell and that's all normal in that phase of sleep. That's typically short, although people who have insomnia often have a prolonged stage one sleep phase. From stage one, you go into stage two, which is unconscious, but still light sleep. And then you go into deep sleep. And from there, you go into dreaming sleep. What's important to know is that after you do the dreaming sleep phase, you go back into light sleep. And so you may very well wake up during that time. And that is normal. People often get really upset when they wake up and they feel like they should sleep absolutely through the night seamlessly. And that's just not the case. We all wake up even if we don't realize it. So we go through these cycles of stages one, two, three, and then dreaming sleep, which is also known as rapid eye movement or REM sleep. That takes about 90 minutes. And then we start over again and we go through multiple versions of that. A lot of times people focus exclusively on the deep sleep and trying to maximize that. And it's not just deep sleep that we're concerned with. We're also concerned with stages one and two and with dreaming sleep because we need all of these things. And a lot of sleep medications will suppress your dreaming sleep 
anti-anxiety medications can do that. And that's really important because what happens during dreaming sleep is memory consolidation. So a lot of times people who take sleep aids for long periods find that their memory is feeling dull. They have those word finding problems or they're just misplacing things or things just don't sink in the same way. That can be a direct result of sleep aids. So we're not just looking at do you go to sleep and just completely knock out and wake up in the morning. We're also looking at what's happening during those times. So things like caffeine affect sleep architecture. Alcohol affects sleep architecture. It will also keep you out of those deeper levels of sleep so that you don't feel as rested and restored. Sleep medications, as I said, even things like a low-carbohydrate diet can affect, a super low-carbohydrate diet can affect sleep architecture and that if there's dramatic fluctuations in blood sugar during the night, that can cause waking and mess up sleep quality as well. Interesting. I feel like there's so many people on the keto diet right now that are probably falling into that category of super low carbohydrate. Yeah. I've seen some elite athletes who really have an issue with that. And it's tricky because when you're dealing with someone who's really training hard, they're often cheating on sleep to get up and, and do early morning workouts as well. And all of those things are really important. It's really about balance. It's not that the keto diet is terrible for everyone, but if you're doing it and you find that you don't feel good, it could be affecting your sleep. Right. Every single body, as we always say, is so different. So it's really just about tuning into yourself. But it, it's interesting for those of you who are trying that or, you know, if you know anyone who's tried that, to be aware that that's something that might come into effect that you probably wouldn't consider. Okay, amazing. So we understand the sleep cycle or sleep architecture and what it is that we're aiming for. Now, what are some ways that we can really help improve our quality of sleep? So very easily limiting caffeine and alcohol, exercising regularly because exercise, of course, regulates the metabolism and keeps your weight down and makes you feel good. It also releases endorphins that combat anxiety and mood disturbance, and those things can obviously affect sleep. Really limiting technology later in the evening, so making sure that you're shutting down at least an hour before bed, and I would suggest shutting down business well before that. If you aren't able to separate business and pleasure on your phone, then your phone should be going away earlier. It's important to have that period of time where your mind can really settle. Going to bed roughly the same time every night, but really getting up at roughly the same time every morning is the key because if you get up at the same time every day, your circadian rhythm is just going to get regulated so nicely that you're going to want to go to bed at the same time every night and then you get into a really good rhythm. It's important, particularly for people who struggle with insomnia, it's also just important to be nicely regulated that way because when the body's functions happen in that kind of a predictable rhythm, it doesn't have to work so hard and everything just runs more smoothly. So if you think about if you eat at the same time every day, you come into a pattern of you don't really think about food until it's just about time to eat. It happens the same way with sleep and that can improve sleep quality as well. My little trick for improving sleep quality, frankly, is reading fiction before bed because I 
have found with myself first and then in the 15 years I've been doing this work that taking that time to really focus on something completely outside of yourself and going on that little trip you take when you get really carried away in a good novel, that that does a really good job of cleaning out all of the excess garbage that you're thinking about at night. And then the body can really take over and get some good sleep. Love that one. Now, is there anything different about, you know, how you can wear the glasses that protect your eyes from blue light of the screen? If you are watching a video that has nothing to do with work on your phone with something that's protecting you from that, is there anything different between that and reading? Yes, there is something different between that and reading. So if you have to be on your phone for whatever reason, and I can't convince you not to, then I would say absolutely use the glasses or you know, get one of the the apps that shields you from the blue light. But the problem with phones and any kind of device, whether it's a tablet or even a laptop, is that we're multitasking. And so you might be watching some happy cat video. And then the next thing you know, you're checking something. Let me just check my bank balance or let me just check my email and see what's happening tomorrow. And none of those things is good. It only primes you to ruminate about business, whether it's personal business or business business. And all of that just keeps your brain active. So the other reason it's better is because reading requires something of us. If you're watching a video, it's passive. If you're reading, you have to do the work. You have to track it. You have to create images to go along with what you're reading. It's a much more sophisticated endeavor. And because it requires that work, your mind is truly occupied. You could be watching a video and still be running over a conversation in your head that you had with somebody at work or with someone you're not getting along with. And it's much harder to do that when you're reading something good. What you want is for those thoughts to be done for the night and to really give your body a chance to settle down. Because remember what I was saying before about adrenaline and our fight or flight response our thoughts will trigger that fight or flight response. So you get yourself back into a whole internal dialogue about what went wrong during the day or what you forgot or what you need to do tomorrow. And your brain is going to sense there's a problem, give you adrenaline, and then lo and behold, here you have insomnia. That is such an interesting point about the thoughts that we have. And I feel like there's so much processing going on at the end of the day about what happened in the last 24 hours. Now, many people say that they use this concept of sleeping on it, sleeping on an idea, sleeping on a proposal, sleeping on whatever information it is that they've just studied for an exam as an opportunity to process. Can you touch it all on that? What happens in our brain? And is our brain still working while we're sleeping? It absolutely is still working. And I would say there are good things and there are not so good things about what you just described. So if you go to sleep after studying, it's going to help you. It actually, they've done studies about just taking a nap after studying and you have better retention of the material because while you sleep, information goes from short-term into long-term memory. However, I would not suggest that you get yourself really worked up about 
a large scale project or dilemma in your life and then try to go to sleep because <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it will be harder to sleep and your sleep won't be as good. So I actually suggest that people put all that stuff on paper, especially if they tend towards ruminating, because if you can write it down, the jumble in your head, A, it becomes linear, which is important. A lot of times when we're thinking through difficult things, we get stuck in circles. So you make it linear and B, it gets kind of discharged from your immediate attention. So if there's nothing you can do about it at you know, 11 o'clock or 2 a.m., then you don't need to be running it through your mind repeatedly. If you put it on a piece of paper, you then no longer have to worry about remembering and you can leave it there to look at with fresh eyes the next day. So I like that kind of sleeping on it. I don't like the idea of thinking you'll work something out in your sleep because that's not successful. So... (laughs) Okay, amazing. So some ways that you've mentioned in regards to improving sleep quality include charging down from our devices at least an hour before going to bed, reading fiction, waking up at a similar time every day, and then trying to go to sleep at a similar time to really promote those healthy cycles and to allow your body to just start subconsciously doing what it does and to functioning properly. Are there any tips in regards to the room that you're in, whether that's from the temperature, does it matter if you've got a sleep mask on or dark blinds, taking a bath or shower before bed, all those kinds of things? Those things are all helpful. So our brain does process light even with our eyes closed. So it's important for it to be dark in the room so that our melatonin stays at peak levels during the night. And that can be done with blackout shades or with an eye mask. White noise can be really helpful because it creates a soothing sound and it allows you to feel confident that you're not going to be jolted awake by any sort of minor intrusion. Temperature is really important. So keeping it cool, but not cold and, you know, making sure that you have a nice, clean, comfortable bed so that as your body temperature fluctuates during the night, you don't get sort of trapped in a heat bath. And speaking of baths, taking a bath does help at night. If you take a bath about 90 minutes before you want to go to sleep, it helps because it raises the body temperature and then it rapidly cools. And that cooling of the body temperature is what happens before we go to sleep. So it it helps facilitate that process. And it also, a bath is just good for body tension, just to kind of help relieve body tension and calm your thoughts. It's good self-care. Yes, absolutely. I think one of the things that I've really shifted in my own bedtime routine that's been very helpful, I used to hate my bedtime routine. I would not look forward to the process of brushing my teeth and washing my face and that whole routine. And I've really created a shift in that to making it an experience I truly enjoy where I'm using products that I really love. I'm taking the time to get like a nice clean cloth and actually massaging my face, noticing the smell of the product that I'm putting on. So it's almost like a mindfulness exercise that I do before bed and a way of honoring myself and my body before I go to sleep. And I've, I've noticed that it has really 
shifted my whole perspective of going to bed. And it's it's not like I'm spending that much time doing this. It is a five or a 10 minute process, but of just really coming back into the moment and practicing taking my mind away from thinking about the future or what happened during the day and just really coming back into the moment that I'm in right now. And I use the bedtime routine of brushing my teeth, flossing, washing my face, brushing my hair as an exercise to allow me to do that. I go through all my five senses and I like, how does this toothpaste taste in my mouth? How does the brush feel against my teeth? And that that creates a reduction in any anxiety or repetitive thought patterns that I'm having. And it it really has shifted my sleep. Right. And it turns that process into something you get to do instead of something you have to do, which just is so much more pleasant and peaceful. You want your bed to be a place where you just can't wait to be. And I think particularly, you know, when you have young kids, even going to bed feels like a chore because you've never done everything (laughs) you're supposed to do. We tell ourselves we have to get to bed at a certain time because otherwise the next day is going to be harder. And all of those messages just take all the joy out of it. But sleep is such a beautiful joy to behold. And it's something that we really do get to do. And if we value it, and make it back into this delight that goes a long way. Oh, it sure does. Okay. So my, my last thing I want to touch on is some of the logistics of sleep. How much sleep should we be getting? Does it matter when we get those hours? Can they be broken up? Mm-hmm. So the average adult needs seven to eight and a half hours of sleep per night, but that's an average. So what that means is that you will probably get a range. It's not going to be 7.2 hours every single night. Some days it'll be six and three quarters. Some days it'll be seven and a half if your average is around seven. That's meant to be sort of a benchmark to allow yourself enough time to get the sleep that your body needs. If you get up at the same time every day and you don't dramatically interfere with your ability to fall asleep, meaning you're taking good care of your sleep and you're going to bed when you feel ready to sleep, your body's going to tell you how much sleep you need. I like to follow the body with that kind of thing because otherwise we get really hung up on these standards and think like I'm going to get fat or I'm going to get wrinkles or I'm going to you know get dementia if I don't hit this mark every day. And then that takes all the joy out. It turns it into a fight. Sleep is best and most productive if it's consolidated. So that means you want to get your good sleep at night. That doesn't mean you can't nap. Some people can't nap. Some people, it's very disruptive and it really makes it hard for them to get what they need at night. So if that is you, you should not nap. But if you are able to take a short nap, like 20 to 40 minutes, and wake up without feeling like you can't even open your eyes, then that kind of power napping can be really good. And in fact, especially good if it replaces a cup of coffee. So, you know, I'd rather see somebody taking a short nap than pounding the caffeine. But again, you want to be mindful of when you're doing it. So I wouldn't say do that at 7 p.m. You want to kind of keep it to the you know first part of the day, like early afternoon, and keep track for yourself so that if you suddenly notice that it's harder for you to fall asleep at night, instead of getting stressed out about that, just kind of understand, okay, I took a nap today. 
I really needed and wanted that nap. And so I'm going to read a little longer tonight because that's just what my body needs. It's when we get caught in the stress of, I have to fall asleep now. What's wrong with me that I can't do it, that we turn it into a bigger problem. It's interesting when you talk about this, some of the concerns that I'm hearing, it almost sounds like some people's relationship to food that it's like, how people can become overconscious of the food that we're eating or the calories that they're counting or the weight on the scale. And it almost sounds like some people can take this sleep discussion and become very anxious and uptight about that too, in a similar way. Absolutely. Because we are perfectionists. Culturally, we've become perfectionists. And if you think about the messages that you've been given about sleep for your whole life, you know, get a good night's sleep. You've got a big day tomorrow starting from the time you were a little kid, that gets just so ingrained. And when we put such high demands on ourselves in terms of our productivity, sleep becomes this thing that we feel like we must have in order to function and be able to be this best person. But the problem is the more you try to control sleep, you know, there's only so much you can do. You take good care of it, you allow the right amount of time, you take good care of your body, you unwind, you do all this great stuff. But that switch of do you fall asleep now or in 10 minutes, that's not in your control. And when you get so focused on what's going to happen if you fall asleep now or in 30 minutes or 60 minutes, again, you just create that stress around sleep that turns into a terrible cycle. Okay. So listeners, we are not aiming to have sleep disorder here where you get over anxious about this. Please just keep tuning back in and practicing these things, but be gentle with yourself and recognize that it's like anything else. Perfecting your sleep or not even perfecting it, but working on improving it is going to take a little bit of time. So be patient with yourself and your body. Now I have a question for you. My husband his ideal working hours, he works during the day and he's a mortgage broker, so he has to be available when banks are open. But his ideal productive hours are between 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. And then he comes to bed and falls right asleep and he would ideally wake up at 9. Now, I feel like at 9 30-ish around that time in the evening, I'm starting to wind down and ideally I'm asleep by 11. Do people have different sleep rhythms or does he just need to train himself? (laughs) People definitely have different sleep rhythms and the task is really to figure out how to make that work in your relationship. If he's leaving you holding the bag every morning with your two little kids, like that's more of a problem than the fact that his sleep is on a different schedule than you. Yeah. And that's all fine. That's like, that's totally, totally fine and not an issue at all. I'm more concerned because I've heard that the time when you're getting the most reparative sleep is sort of in between that 10 to 6 a.m. period of time. So I worry for his health that he is missing out on a big chunk of that. Probably not. The trouble with night owls is that when they try to go to bed early, they end up with insomnia unless they consistently wake up at the same time every day. So if he were motivated to, he could probably shift that forward some but he's not going to be going to bed at 9.30. Even if he gets good sleep, so let's say starting at 10, he's still going to be really groggy in the morning because that's not his natural rhythm. Mm, okay. 
that makes sense. That totally makes sense. So that's a very interesting note for individuals who are night owls. Is there any truth to that, that if you can sleep from sort of 10 till six, that those are ideal hours? Or is that just a myth? I don't think I can be definitive on that because I actually have not seen that data. So I I don't want to weigh in on that one. Fair, fair. We'll leave, <laughs> we'll leave that one for now. Amazing. Okay. I have some questions from the audience. The first one is from somebody named Danny. She says, why do I always feel so sick and gross when I wake up from a nap? <laughs> so she's probably napping too long. Short naps are best because if you do let yourself get into that deep sleep cycle, then you can end up waking up with what's called sleep inertia, which means that you're waking up in the wrong phase and it's just extremely hard to wake up. Now, even if you're trying to take a short nap, even in that situation, you have this same thing happening. That's probably an indication that you're sleep deprived and you should focus on sleeping more and better at night. If you're chronically sleep deprived from your nighttime sleep and you try to take a 30 minute nap, you go into deep sleep really quickly because of that sleep deprivation. And so you end up with that sleep inertia. So focus on nighttime sleep. See if there's anything that can be improved there. Try not to use long naps to make up for nighttime sleep. It's better to focus on naps for a little bit of a reset and recharge during the day instead of primary sleep chunk. Source. Gotcha. Okay. Your next question is from Amy. She says, why do we dream and can we control our dreams at all? So this is where science is lacking. We know that somehow during the dreaming process, learning turns into long-term memory. And there are lots of theories from probably the beginning of time about what else is going on while we dream, whether we're working out long repressed, you know, thoughts and memories or trying to deal with anxieties, you name it. There's not really a clear understanding of what's actually happening there, but we do know that dreaming sleep is essential to health because when you take it away, people don't function as well. The body doesn't function as well. The mind doesn't function as well. So we do need it. You can dive into lucid dreaming. There's all kinds of ways that people try to harness dreaming. And for people who have chronic nightmares, you can actually rehearse alternative outcomes to your nightmares. I believe it's called dream rehearsal therapy. I'm not, I'm not sure off the top of my head if I'm getting that right. But if that's something that you're struggling with, you can certainly go through treatment for that and it does work. But as to why does this crazy thing happen three or four times a night while we're sleeping, I can't give you a great answer for that. If we wake up and we can't remember our dreams, does that mean that we didn't dream? No, it does not. Good. <laughs> so we typically also, we typically dream more in the second half of the night. So the beginning of the night, we spend more time in deep sleep and less time dreaming. And then as in the next sleep cycle and the next one and the next one, dreaming starts to take up a bigger portion and deep sleep goes to a smaller portion. That's actually really helpful to know because a lot of times when people wake up at like four or five in the morning and they get upset, like I'm screwed, I don't didn't get enough sleep, they've actually already gotten all of their deep sleep for the night. 
and if they go back to sleep and have lighter sleep, that's not a reason for concern. Okay. Good to know. And the last question is from somebody who's anonymous. They said, do you have any apps that you would recommend to help track sleep or to help improve sleep quality? You know, there's a lot of sleep diary apps available. I prefer not using wearables because the technology isn't as precise as the data would lead you to believe, um, the data that they show you. And also, it's hard to interpret those numbers if you are just a lay person who doesn't know anything about sleep. So people often will come to me and say, I only got, you know, 72 minutes of deep sleep last night. I didn't sleep at all. And it's like, that's not true. That just is telling you the estimate of the deep sleep, but you did actually sleep and get good sleep. So in terms of sleep diaries, there's a new one that I'm working with that is actually designed to help you work with a therapist. You can do it to track your own sleep to see if your sleep warrants some kind of treatment or intervention, and then it will help you find someone. That's called Circady, C-I-R-C-A-D-Y. And the VA has put out a free one called CBTI Coach that I have used in the past. Honestly, I enjoy using plain old Excel just to kind of track things in a grid and look at wake up times and bedtimes and night wakings and things like that. So it doesn't have to be tremendously sophisticated. It could be, but really looking at what time you're waking up and being honest about it and what time you go to bed, how long it takes you to fall asleep, how many times and how long you're awake during the night, and then tracking the big habits that make a difference alcohol, caffeine, exercise, your mood, and medication. So any of those things will be helpful to sort of understand how that might relate. We always create a free PDF for listeners with all the information and tips and tricks and hacks that you've provided. So that will all be included in your free download. You can find that in the show notes. As I said, it's totally free. So go grab it and start diving into this incredible world of sleep. Dr. Kennedy, if you could leave with one message for listeners in regards to sleep, what would it be? Your body knows how to sleep. You just have to get your mind and maybe some of your habits out of its way. Trying to control it too much can backfire, but you want to respect it and take good care of it and roll with it. When you have an off night, it's just an off night. It's not the end of the world. Amazing. Where can people go if they want to find out more information about you or to follow along on your teachings? So my website is nycsleepdoctor.com. And I am on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYC Sleep Doctor. And my book is called The Good Sleeper, The Essential Guide to Sleep for Your Baby and You. And it's available as an ebook and wherever print books are sold. Amazing. And mamas who are listening, I promise we will have Dr. Kennedy back to do a, an episode specifically for those early years with babies, because there is lots to talk about in that area as well. That is it for this episode, but be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss a single show. If you liked this episode, please take a moment to leave a five-star review. It would 
would mean the world. Uh, you can also take a screenshot and share it on social tagging at Raw Beauty Talks. We'll be regramming your posts every week. As we wrap things up, always remember that your body is different than any other body out there. So as you listen to these episodes, keep tuning back into yourself to see what resonates. Thanks so much for listening. Do you ever feel like you're struggling through motherhood? You're not alone. I'm Erica Jossa, host of the MomWell podcast, therapist and mom of three. Join me each Wednesday as I sit down with guests, including psychologists, pediatricians, psychiatrists, fertility specialists, lactation consultants, and more to unravel the myths of motherhood. With expert advice, practical tips, self-love, and some coping skills to help you along the way, you can become the mother you want to be. Listen to the MomWell podcast at momwell.com slash listen or on your favorite podcast platform.